pay back this loan better and faster than anybody else, so please give me my money so I can buy my house or whatever, that new car that I want. And so when we come to the book of Luke, chapter 3, verse 21 through 38, we are, Luke gives us this, and one of the reasons he gives us this is I believe that he is sharing with us Jesus' qualifications. Remember why Luke even wrote this gospel in the first place. He wrote this gospel because he wants the reader to know with certainty um, the things that they believe. And one of the things we believe is Jesus is the Son of God. Is He qualified, however, to be Messiah? Is He qualified to be Lord of your life? Is He qualified to do all the things that He said He's going to do? I think that's a fair question. There are a lot of people who say, well, I can bring you joy or happiness, or I can do this or that, or I can add value to your life, or what have you. Jesus says that I am the resurrection and the life, that I am the judge of the living and the dead. Some of the things we read in that Nicene Creed, that he's going to come and judge the living and the dead. He is the, the Lord, the giver of life. Is he qualified to say those things? Well, by the end of our message today, if you don't already think so, you will be saying, absolutely, Jesus is qualified. These, this could be his resume, his application, if you will. Not that he needs to apply, but remember, Luke is writing these things so that you might be certain of the things that you have believed. And we need to remind ourselves on a regular basis of the glories and the beauties and the greatness of our Lord and Savior. So, um, that's kind of, uh, so just by, by review, some of the places where, where we've been, we've been talking a lot about John the Baptist. We really haven't been spending a lot of time with Jesus Christ, but John the Baptist has been the forerunner. He's the one who's gone before the Messiah. He's the one who's come before Christ. And he has been out in the wilderness baptizing people with the baptism of repentance, basically calling really even Jews to come and to be purified and washed of their sins. But all John is doing is he is preparing the way for Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not the Messiah. There's one coming. He's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie the, the, the thong of the sandal. And he goes on and says, I must decrease. Jesus must increase. But what I'm doing, I'm the voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And that's what he's been doing. Say, Christ is coming. Messiah is coming. Now prepare your hearts. Get ready. And the way you're going to get ready for Christ's arrival uh, is by repenting of your sins and going through this uh, this act of, of purification. And this is a testimony. It says, repent and show forth fruits of repentance. Just don't say, I repent, but actually do something. Uh, change, your life needs to change in preparation for the coming of the King. So that's where we've been. Where I, I hope to go today is to um, share with us, as I stated, the qualifications of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. And we're going to learn that Jesus is not only the Son of God, He is the rightful King, He is the second Adam. That's going to be a really key phrase for us, both this week and next week, the Anointed One and the Servant of the Lord um, able to do all that he claims that he is able to do, that Jesus is the Son of God, the last Adam, because folks, in Adam all die, and in Jesus there is life. So Jesus is 
the Son of God, the rightful King. He's the possessor of the Holy Spirit. He is the Lord and giver of life. One thing I do want to uh, let you know is that chapter 321 through chapter 4 through 13 really form a single unit. Uh, I think they're all uh, talking or uh, affirming or affirming is not really the right word, but giving support to to the same information. But we'll split this up. We'll look at 4, 1 through 13 next week. That's the temptations of Christ. Um, but all of these are talking about how Jesus is qualified to be Lord and Savior and Master, that he is the second Adam, and in him all live. Just like in Adam, all have died and all bear the sin and guilt of Adam. If you are in Adam, um, you, you need... You need a new family, and Jesus is the head of that new family. So, with that, let's go ahead and read our text today. It is chapter 3, verse 21 through 38, and here we go. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semyon, the son of Josek, the son of Judah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kossum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we begin now, I love this passage of text because it's so easy to outline. We have two big sections, don't we? We have the baptism of Jesus and we have the genealogies of Jesus. And you guys are all sitting around going, what are you going to do with that genealogy, Pastor John? <laughs> That's why you all came. It's, yeah, you got the genealogies and we want to see how he manages that. <laughs> well, I'm still wondering myself. So <laughs> We're all in for a ride, but we can talk about the baptism first. That's, that was pretty, that, that's a little less challenging. Actually, neither of them are all that challenging. Both are God's word, and there is much to learn from all of them. But, so we come to the baptism of Jesus, and he's submitting to John's 
to John's baptism, which is a baptism for repentance, which immediately caused all of us to ask the question, why? Why was Jesus baptized? After all, if Jesus, and he is, the sinless Son of God, why does he need to be baptized for the repentance of sin? Since after all, he's never sinned, does not need to repent, why does he need to undergo this baptism? I think that's a fair question, and I'm glad you asked it. And I'm glad you thought it, because you're all wondering, why would he need to be baptized since he is sinless? Well, the first thing, and, and I'll address that, but, and, and there are a couple of answers. There is an implicit answer, and there's an explicit answer, and I'll deal with the implicit answer first. And the implicit answer comes to us from this idea that now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized with all the people, this was not a private ceremony. It was not one I've, I've heard some, some commentators, in fact, some uh, that I highly respect, say, no, this was a private affair, that Jesus was apart from the people, that this happened in private. I just don't see that in any of the baptismal events, that this was a very public baptism. And so Jesus, along with the people, was baptized, and so here we begin to see um, this implicit reason, that is, that Jesus' his identification with the people. What kind of king is he going to be? What kind of Messiah will he be? Will he be a king or a Messiah who is aloof from the people, stands afar off, and has nothing to do with those filthy, shameful, nasty, vile creatures down there? I'll keep you at an arm's length. No, Messiah gets into the muck and the mire of our lives. You think... Really? You know my life. No, I don't. Some of you I do. But no, probably not. But here's what I know. Jesus steps in to your life and is intimately and personally involved with you. He is not one who stands aloof from his subjects. He is one who enters into their mess. Praise God. Jesus enters into our mess. In fact, the very, the very fact that he puts on flesh and dwells among us is evidence that he enters into our mess. And we should not be surprised that, that Jesus identified with the people in this way, even though it was unnecessary for him to be baptized. But think about it. Jesus celebrated the Passover which was a foreshadowing of things to come, which pointed to him. He didn't need to partake of, of the Passover that spoke about him, but he did. Remember that passage where he paid the temple tax? And he asked, they said, well, we've got to pay this temple tax. And, and Jesus said, well, who pays the tax? Do the subjects or the king's son pay the tax? Well, the king's sons don't pay the tax. Guess who the king's son is? Jesus said, what does he do? He ended up paying the temple. He, he did things that were not completely, they weren't necessary. I'll explain why he did that in a bit. In something we covered a, maybe a month, month and a half ago. But I'll, I'll remind us again. But Jesus participated in many events. I wonder, I, I, I think, um, and I think I can make the case that probably Jesus even offered a sacrificial lamb at Passover. Which would be really interesting. So Jesus um, didn't do this because he needed to, but he is doing it as his identification with the people. He stands among the condemned as one who will be condemned for them. This is one of his qualifications as Messiah 
king, that he stands with the people. So that's the implicit reason, but it's very explicit. Fortunately, when we ask the question, why was Jesus baptized? We don't have to search very far because Scripture interprets Scripture. And we can just go to the Scripture and it will tell us. In Matthew 3.15, we learn explicitly. John protests and says, I, I can't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus said, how about for now, you baptize me. Because we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So fortunately, the Bible tells us why Jesus was baptized, to fulfill all righteousness. And I've alluded to that um, in my previous statements. And of course, we dealt with this issue a month, month and a half ago. But it's, it bears reminding if you've forgotten, or maybe you weren't here that particular day, about what it means that Jesus fulfills all righteousness. This is critical to our faith as believers. Because so oftentimes we think of Jesus' death and Jesus dying for our sins, which he did. He took our sins upon him. Absolutely. Your sins were transferred to Christ on the cross. 100%. That is absolute biblical truth. We affirm it, uphold it, will not deny it. But Jesus just didn't die for your sins. Kind of the, but wait, there's more. Because if Jesus died for your sins, you would be sinless, but you would not be righteous. See, on the cross, a couple of things happened. What we would, a fancy term, smart guys call this kind of a, a double imputation. An imputation is just a fancy word for crediting something to another person's account. So your sins were credited to Jesus' account, and now you are without sin. But that's not all that happened. Here's the other thing that happened. His righteousness was credited to your account. So you, in your account was sin, in his account was righteousness. He took your sin and became sin for us and credited to you his Righteousness, praise God, you are now not only without sin, your sins are taken by Christ, but his righteousness is now accounted to you. Your righteousness is in heaven. You are the righteousness of God in Christ because of Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He fulfilled all righteousness. He did everything that the law demanded and commanded. He is the only person in history who 100% fulfilled the law. And he did it not just to be a great example, but to be the righteous sacrifice who then transfers that righteousness into your account. You are without sin and you are righteous because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. This is why he lived a, a one reason why he lived a, a life of complete perfection. He did not be, he was not baptized because he needed it. He was baptized because we needed it. So, our first issue here, our first qualification is that Jesus is baptized. What kind of a king? What's on his resume? His resume is, I am one. I will stand with the condemned because I will be condemned for you and I will fulfill all righteousness. And on that dark and shameful day, I will bear your sin. And my righteousness will be transferred to your account. 
Christ not only died for your sins, but He lived for your righteousness. So that's the first qualification. But then we see one of the interesting things about Luke's baptismal account is he, he, he records Jesus praying and the way that this is phrased, it, sounds, it says that he was praying that throughout baptismal, the baptism, he was praying. It was, it was during that, that the whole baptismal event that he was praying. And I find this interesting. Luke is very interested in Jesus praying. Luke focuses a lot. I think seven times Luke brings up Jesus praying. And so here, one of the things that we under, come to understand about Christ is that from the very beginning of his ministry to the very end of his ministry, Jesus demonstrates his dependence upon the Father through prayer. And so, whether Jesus is here at his baptism or whether Jesus is selecting his disciples or whether Jesus is going off by himself to commune with his heavenly Father or whether Jesus is in the garden saying, not my will, but thine be done, or whether Jesus is on the cross saying, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, he is utterly and completely dependent upon the Father. And so we have a a gracious Lord who demonstrates his need to rely upon the power and the strength of his heavenly Father. And so Jesus is baptized. He is praying during his baptism. And then one of the coolest phrases in the Bible is that the heavens were opened. This reminds us of Isaiah chapter 64 Verse 1, where the prophet writes, O Lord, rend the heavens and come down. Fulfilled on this day, the heavens are rent open and the Lord is present. We see a lot of times in Scripture where the heavens are open and people actually get to gaze into the heavenly realm. We see Stephen um, as he is being put to death for his faith. He gazes into heaven. Heaven is open and he sees Christ seated, standing uh, at the right hand of the Father. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see it throughout Scripture. Heaven's open and we get a glimpse of what's going on inside there. And I believe that this is one of the key features of the work of Christ, that he opens heaven. Jesus is the one whose ministry opens heaven and grants us access. That he is the bridge, he is the ladder, he is the one who connects heaven and earth. And we see this, of course, in John chapter 1, verse 51, where um, Jesus tells Nathaniel's kind of amazed, saying, how, how do you know so much about me? And, and Jesus says, you think that's amazing? He says, you're going to see other things. And he said, um, you're going to see um, angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, that's kind of weird passage of text. What does that mean? Angels ascending and descending upon me? That doesn't make any sense. He's referring back to um, Jacob's dream. Remember, Jacob had a dream way back in the book of Genesis, and Jacob saw heaven, the heavens opened, and he saw a ladder extending from heaven to earth, and angels ascending and descending, and he called that place Bethel, the house of God. This is the place where heaven and earth are connected. This is the place where heaven, 
Heaven comes down to earth and earth ascends to heaven. This is the place where God meets man and man meets God. And Jesus takes that imagery and says, I'm the ladder. I'm the bridge. All right? I'm the one who connects heaven and earth. I'm the one uh, who brings heaven down and brings mankind up. I am the one that connects heaven and earth. Heaven is open and Jesus is the bridge. Jesus is the ladder, if you will, that connects you and I to our Heavenly Father. Praise God. So we see Jesus baptized. We see him praying. We see the heavens open. But the heavens aren't open and then just nothing happens. Here's what happens. First of all, uh, perhaps it all happened simultaneously, but we'll handle it one thing at a time. We see the descent of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. Now, let me... So at this point now, we see um, Jesus being uh, set apart for ministry. At this point, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 says, behold, my I think this is important. Behold, my servant, who I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. And so this is one of the servant psalms. Songs. In Isaiah, you'll, you'll see Isaiah referring to Jesus, the coming Messiah, as the, promise, as the servant of the Lord. And here God is saying that the servant of the Lord is the one whom I put my spirit upon. And I think that this is a, a direct allusion back to Isaiah, uh, referring to the fact that Jesus is the one who bears the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is the servant of God, who has the spirit of God. Now, we might question, wait a second, didn't Jesus always have the Holy Spirit? Absolutely, Jesus always had the Holy Spirit. And, and I want to bring that up because there is some, there's teaching out there, and it's ancient heresy, but there is teaching out there that Jesus was just a regular guy and he lived his life in about 30 years of age when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him and at that point he became the Son of God. That is, um, like I said, that's been around for 2,000 years. And for 2,000 years, it's been heresy. It was heresy 2,000 years ago. It's heresy today. And 2,000 years, it'll still be heresy. I know nobody here, I hope nobody here believes that. If you have questions about that, we would love to, to speak with you about that. But Jesus was always the Son of God, and he was always, he, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He's always had the Holy Spirit. So why does the Holy Spirit come down upon him? Because we see that often the Holy Spirit came upon people to commission them for their particular task or ministry. And we see that throughout the scripture. So Jesus, who has the Holy Spirit, conceived of the Holy Spirit, walked in the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is saying, you are qualified. I am now empowering you to do your ministry. For, for 30 years, Jesus was not doing the ministry that he had set for, that he was um, called from eternity to do. He was living his life, and now he is going to go about bringing about the redemption of mankind. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him and equips him and empowers him for that special ministry. And that's, of course, a very Old Testament idea. And so we see now Jesus baptized, identified with the people, fulfilling all righteousness, dependent upon the Father. The bridge, the ladder between heaven and earth, and commissioned by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the task which 
ultimately is dying for our sins and being raised from the dead and ascending into heaven. He is now empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out the function that has been planned from all eternity. Then, the very central theme of this whole text. For you grammar geeks, this is the main clause. Everything else we have talked about is a subordinate clause. For those of you who are not grammar geeks, you can just ignore that. But this is the main clause. In other words, this is the main point. A voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That is the main point that Luke wants us to hear. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So now heaven speaks audibly. We often talk about how the God had been silenced for 400 years in what we call the intertestamental period, that period between, say, um, the time, the closing of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament, how God was silent and didn't really, um, there was no prophetic word there. Uh, Of course, God was active, but there was no prophetic word given. And then all of a sudden, um, to Zacharias um, and Elizabeth, God spoke for the first time in four years to them. But he always spoke through an intermediary. He always spoke through an angel. And now, here we are, 430 years later, at the baptism of Jesus, God does not speak through an intermediary about his son. God. God the Father, the eternal creator of all things, has something to say. You know God's speaking. I mean, not, I mean, unfiltered without an intermediary. I'm not sending anybody to communicate this. I'll communicate this one myself. This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Luke records twice where God speaks from heaven. This is the first one. Sometime way down the road, we'll get to the second one. So God now audibly speaks. We've all heard, heard the, the kind of humorous saying, right? If you want to hear God speak today, you know, read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak out loud, audibly, read the Bible out loud. <laughs> I just need a word, an audible word from God. Read the Bible and read it out loud, and that's God speaking. Well, this is even beyond that. This is God. The heavens open, the Holy Spirit coming down, and a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this takes us right back to the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 2, which is a psalm uh, that speaks of Messiah, but also speaks of um, the Lord's anointed and the King. And it's, it's a kingly psalm. And it says, I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And so God is now quoting Himself, if you will, uh, saying that this this guy right here, the one who is identifying with the people who is fulfilling all righteousness, who is dependent upon me for prayer, who is commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit, he is also my chosen king. This is my beloved son. And him I am well pleased. So what does it mean to be the son of God? Well, that term is used a lot in the Bible. It can be used to speak of Israel as a son of God. It's used to speak of human people, sons of God. But it's also used in a very unique sense to speak of the eternal 
Son of God, who is co-equal, co-eternal um, with our Heavenly Father. And of course, we see this throughout Scripture. John loves to talk about uh, this, uses this term often of the Son of God. But in Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30, this is what Jesus himself says. He says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, we read, while he was still speaking, behold, um, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then John chapter 5, verse 23. We read this amazing passage of text where Jesus says, I'll go to 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Here it is, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So we see that Jesus is the Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with the Heavenly Father. If you want to honor God the Father, you must honor the Son in the same way. We, I think, put some various passages of text in your in your notes that it is Jesus who has all authority to give life and exercise judgment. See this in John 3.36 and John 10.17. And that in Hebrews 1, that Jesus is an exact representation of the Father. We also see that in the book, book of Colossians, that it is Jesus who upholds the universe. Let me look over here in Hebrews chapter 1 as we're discussing this issue of what does it mean to be the Son of God while Israel can be called the Son of God and while people can be called the Son of God, there is a unique designation of the Son of God as the one who is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. Authority of heaven and earth. The one who lives and reigns and rules and is coming again. Hebrews says, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the Son of God, the one who created all things, made all things, upholds all things, and is the exact image of God. And then the author of Hebrews goes on and in verse 5 he says, For to which of the angels did God ever say that you are my son today I have begotten you? Or again I will be a father to him and he will be a son. And then Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, But of the son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Did you get that passage of text? 
That is just so crucial. Notice what he says. But of the Son, Jesus, this is what God says. Are you ready for what God says about Jesus? Yeah? (laughs) Here's what God says about Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God calls Jesus God. Oh my goodness. God calls Jesus God. I think, well, if we go back to the whole resume thing, that's a pretty good endorsement. <laughs> when God calls you God, what can you say other than, yeah. So when we're talking about the Son of God, we are not talking about Him being being Israel or just another guy like you and me and others. No, we're talking about God saying, this is my beloved Son, co-equal, co-eternal, creator of all things, judge of the living and the dead. This is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased. He is the King of all. So, let me just summarize this baptism thing. Put all of this, these pieces together. Here's what we come up with. Jesus is the servant king, anointed and commissioned to fulfill all righteousness, living life in perfect obedience, dying as the spotless lamb of God, able to take away our sins and impart his righteousness to us. And now he receives the testimony of two witnesses. The law says by the testimony of two or three witnesses, the thing will be established. Well, he's got two witnesses, Father and Holy Spirit. Pretty good references. And you don't need to call them to check on they showed up at his interview. Yeah, I'm God the Father, and here's God the Holy Spirit, and we're just here to say, yeah, he's qualified. This is as good as you get. There's no better reference than this. So he receives the testimony of two witnesses as the one who has is, who is come to seek and to save the lost. And so this is behind the baptism of Jesus. This is not just a good example. Well, since Jesus was baptized, we should be baptized because Jesus prayed, we should pray. Those are all true. Those are great things. But there is something behind this that is much more beyond this idea of what we should emulate his life. We should. But understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Living, reigning, God in human flesh dwelling among us. And that's not just my belief. God said it. God said Jesus is God. I don't know how you get around that. Nor can I understand why you would want to get around that. So, that's the first part. Now we're going to go to the genealogy. So, so, so genealogies are really important for us because they show us our roots. And let's face it, there's all sorts of companies out there right now. And genealogies are big. Even if you're not LDS, genealogies are really big. So there are websites, you know, Ancestry.com, a bunch of others. And you can go and find out who you came from. There was a TV show that showed famous people, their, their heritage, and their lineage, and went through their genealogy and said, you know, you have this, you know, in your background and all of these things. It shows where we came from. Genealogies are, are important. They tell us who we are. They tell us our roots. So then the question is this. Why does Luke include a genealogy? Well, that's a fairly simple question to answer. But here's a, a little more intriguing question. And that is, 
why does Luke include the genealogy here? Because after all, if I was concluding the genealogy, if I was writing the gospel, I would probably include the genealogy kind of at the beginning of the book like Matthew does, or maybe somewhere around the birth of Christ. But he includes the genealogy when Jesus is 30 years old, getting ready to start his ministry. That's a very interesting thought. So why does Luke include the genealogy here? Because Luke is including the genealogy not just simply to show us Jesus' lineage and who his forefathers were, and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so begot so-and-so, and and just to bore us or to uh, cause us to say, gosh, why is all this here? He is making a theological point. Here's a theological point that we've already been making, but we're going to affirm even more and establish with greater clarity that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why I include it here. He is the Son of God. And we're going to see this. And more importantly, that Jesus, now get this, that Jesus is not just just the Son of God, that Jesus is the second Adam. Or the final Adam, I should say. Probably much more accurate to say that Jesus is the final Adam. I will unpack that in just a few moments. But Luke puts this here because Luke is making a theological point. He is not just giving us information. He is giving us information, but his information has a theological purpose. And so the next thing we want to deal with and just kind of get out of the way as quickly as we possibly can um, before I, we move on to where I want to go, and, and that is many people have talked about the challenges between reconciling Matthew's genealogy and Jesus's and Luke's genealogy. There are two genealogies of Christ in the Bible. Matthew gives us one. Luke gives us the other. They are clearly different. I don't care how you look at it, how you work it out. They are different. Not just the fact that Matthew only goes back to Abraham. That's not really a significant point. Well, it is, but uh, but not in the, the area of being a difficulty. They're just different names. So, there are at least four valid ways to resolve that conflict. I am not going to go into them. They are very detailed. You can look that up if you're interested. Probably the one that's most plausible, but not without serious issues. Um, Probably the one you may have heard is that Matthew records the genealogy through Joseph and Luke records the genealogy through Mary, which would be really odd to do a genealogy through a woman, but it would make sense for Luke because Luke is very interested. I don't want to make this sound bad. Luke esteems women. All right? Women have a high place in the book of Luke. So it wouldn't seem odd for Luke to put that in there. We just don't have any other record of it. And there are some other difficulties um, that, that come up. That's probably the most plausible, has the best explanations, but there are some things that are just unanswerable. So then our question for us becomes, can we trust the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture since we have these serious difficulties in the Bible and they are at this point unreconcilable? I think every honest commentator just simply says, I don't know. Let me give you an example. Let me give you a, a little bit of a history lesson. I know I've used this example many times before, but it's very apt at this point in time. It seems odd to me that people would say, oh, because we haven't figured something out, and the Bible must be wrong. They never think that maybe we just don't know everything. Could it be 
that we just don't know everything. I'll give you a great, a great example. Because we see that throughout history, people will look at the Bible and they'll see an archaeological um, site or they'll see a name of a famous person and say, well, we have no record that that person ever lived and so they must not have lived and so the Bible must be false because we don't have a record that that person lived and that person's in the Bible so the Bible must be wrong. Never considering for a moment that maybe they just don't know everything. Or, the Bible mentions a particular place, and we don't have, we've never discovered that, and by golly, we've uncovered everything there is to know, so it, the Bible must be wrong. And then, lo and behold, somebody's out wandering around the Palestinian desert one day, and they kick over a rock, and there's something, and next thing you know, all the archaeologists come in and go, aha, hey, that thing that we haven't found, there it is. And the great case in point, and I know I've mentioned this a lot, but it's, it's very applicable, and that is, uh, the Hittite people, the Hittite Empire, for years, skeptics and biblical critics, they see the Bible wrong. The Bible talks about Hittite culture and there are no Hittite people. We've never discovered a Hittite person, a Hittite culture, a Hittite city, a Hittite horse or a Hittite camel. Never. And so the Bible has to be wrong. Never for a moment considering that maybe you just don't know everything. And then one day, somebody's kicking around in the desert, and they kick over a rock, and they discover something. Oh, this looks very interesting. And that gets the interest of all the archaeologists, and they come in, and they uncover this Hittite city. And Hittite people, and Hittite pottery, and Hittite camels, and Hittite horses, and Hittite stables, and Hittite garbage dumps, and Hittite everything. And all of a sudden, wow, you know, today you can get a Ph.D. in Hittite culture. Seventy years ago, you said people were saying the Bible's fault because there are no Hittites. Today, you can get a Ph.D. in Hittite culture. Maybe, just maybe, we don't know everything. Maybe one day somebody's kicking around and comes across a document and it, we say, oh, look at that. That explains it all. So, does this in any way compromise the veracity of Scripture? No, not so not in any way, shape or form. It's just simply an acknowledgement that you and I don't know everything. So, now that we've dealt with that, let's talk about what I really want to talk about. And that is the way the genealogy ends. Because it definitely ends differently than Matthew. See, Matthew ends with Abraham. It goes back, it shows Jesus' impeccable Hebrew history, that he is the rightful Jewish king. He is the king of the Jews. It goes back and shows that Jesus, it goes back to the fountainhead of the Jewish people. The Jewish people began with Abraham. And so the Matthew's genealogy takes us all the way back and shows that Jesus has this perfect, he is, he is the perfect Hebrew. He is the king of the Jews. He is the rightful king. It's a great genealogy. But you notice that Luke doesn't take us back to Abraham. Luke takes us back to Abraham, the fountainhead of the Jewish people, and then he keeps going. And he takes us back to the fountainhead of the human race. You see, because Jesus is not only king of the Jews, Jesus is king of all mankind. And I think that's Luke's point. Jesus is representative not just of the Jews, as Adam or as Matthew emphasizes, but that Jesus represents all humanity. 
and I love this, that he is the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam was the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus now, and we'll spend a fair amount of time dealing with this next week, Jesus is the last Adam. And I don't just make that up. I read that in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 45 and following. It says this, But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. He's talking about resurrection. And he says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Oh, I missed my IQ. Let me go back. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead. And he's talking about this natural body that goes into the ground and it's raised immortal. And he says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was made of dust and he sinned and in Adam all died. And in the second Adam all lived. Just in case um, we're not certain, Paul brings this up spends a fair amount of time in Romans chapter 5 dealing with this very issue of the second Adam being um, the one in whom all who are in the second Adam have life. And he says this in in, um, Romans chapter 5, verses 16 through 19. He says this, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man, sin, Adam, for judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam, if, for if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Do you get what he's saying? Adam represented mankind in the garden and he sinned and as a result all became sinners but through the one man Jesus Christ who fulfilled all righteousness and died for our sins all in the second Adam have eternal life those who are in the first Adam you all die those who are in the second Adam you will all have eternal life this is I believe why we have this idea of Luke going back to Adam and Adam being the son of God. Jesus is also the son of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased because Jesus is now empowered by the Holy Spirit. And guess where he's about to go? He's about to go into the wilderness. We call this his probation period. Adam had a probation period. Adam's probation period was in the garden with his perfect helpmate wife, with everything you could imagine. And they received one temptation around this and beautiful garden and they failed and as a result of one man's sin all became sinners. Jesus now as the second Adam goes not into the garden but into the wilderness not with his perfect helpmate wife but all by himself and he is confronted by by Satan um, with three temptations and Jesus emerges from that victorious and able now to go about doing the work of Messiah. Like I said, we'll spend time with that. So where Adam was failed, Jesus is triumphant. 
And as the Son of God, Jesus is now affirmed by the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He enters into his probation where he is tempted and he is tried. He comes out victorious. And then he begins his ministry of calling Adam's children to repent and be adopted into the new family which he, of which he is the head and of which is filled with all righteousness. This is the purpose of what Luke is telling us with this genealogy. I know that's kind of complex. I hope you get it because it is astounding what Luke is telling us. I'll conclude with this. Jesus is the beloved Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with our Heavenly Father. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. Jesus is the servant king empowered to represent mankind, to pay for their sins and impart his righteousness and now call you a child of the Most High. All who are in Adam will die. And if Adam is your representative, you will die. All in Adam will die. All who are in Christ will receive his life, his sinlessness and his righteousness and he will become your new fountainhead of new family. You now have a new genealogy and you, your genealogy goes through Jesus Christ who is the Son of God in whom the Father is well pleased. With that, let's stand and let me catch my breath. We will pray. If you have uh, ever called upon the name of the Lord, um, what a great day. Why not? You know what? I, I put forth the resume. I think the resume is impeccable. I don't think you can deny it. you got God. 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 Saying, yeah, he's qualified. Yeah, he can do exactly. He can die for your sins. He can impart his righteousness. He can make you new again. And he can live his life through you. And that, so that you live this life and in the joy of perfect fellowship with our Heavenly Father. And on the day you breathe your last breath, you will join Jesus and the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit and all of the saints who have believed throughout all eternity. You will join them for everlasting life. That can start right now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. I'd love to talk with you if you are interested in that. My wife and I would love to with you. Jaime's back in the sound booth. He'll, he'll talk to you. Nelson's back here. He'll talk to you. I'm sure just about anybody in here would love to talk with you about those matters. So let's pray. Our gracious Father, our gracious God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God, Evident in this event, manifesting yourself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all involved in the work of salvation. We come before you this day and we thank you, Lord God, that you've loved us and you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, as the Son of God to live and fulfill all righteousness, to die and to take our sins. He rose again from the dead as the first fruits of all who will rise from the dead. And because he rose, we will rise. Because he lives, we will live. And all who are in Christ will receive 
the benefits of Christ. For he is the head of our family. And so we thank you and we praise you, Lord God. I pray that you would convict our hearts and that we would walk in righteousness before you. These things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.